one, one, two. Check me out right here, yo. Hello and welcome back to Jake's World. Episode 5 of Jake's World once again is presented to you by absolutely nobody. I'm your host, Jake Sawinski, and today is Monday, April 27th. Got a pretty big show planned for you today. Uh, The NFL draft took place Thursday over the weekend. And last night was episodes three and episode four of The Last Dance, the 97-98 Chicago Bulls documentary. But first, there is something that I feel like I need to talk about. And even though I don't want to, I feel like I need to say something about the issue, especially because it happened so close to me. You have to be, I don't know, like some kind of mutant to not know what's going on in our country right now. I mean, with coronavirus and all the steps we have taken to remain safe and implement our, you know, protective things and, you know, keeping our distance so we don't infect others and spread this disease that we have going on right now and we don't have a vaccine to. You'd have to be an absolute fool to not understand what's going on. And you're probably living in a state where you've had a stay-at-home order in place. Well, coming from Madison, Wisconsin, the capital right here, that stay-at-home order was eased on Friday, April 24th. Like, us, golf courses were allowed to be opened. Um... Some other types of businesses were able to reopen, you know, maintaining social distancing practices, of course. But it's meant to gradually ease our way back into a semi-normal state of life without, you know, bringing back all the risk associated with our normal life before. And I go to work that day and... I mean, it's a normal day for me. I get home and I, you know, just playing on my phone, catching up on everything, Twitter, whatever, Snapchat stories. And um, I see, like, an article about a couple thousand people gathering at the Capitol, downtown Madison. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound, you know, very smart given everything going on. And they were protesting, you know, this stay-at-home order being extended instead of canceled. And, I mean, I'm not sure how many of you look at the statistics of everything. Wisconsin is one of the lesser-impacted states just because of, you know, our geography and our demographics. Aside from Madison and Milwaukee, it's a pretty rural state, and there's not a lot of people congregated in major cities. So, naturally, you're going to have less impact in areas aside from Madison and Milwaukee. And people were protesting, like, why don't we open up? I mean, whatever they think, they have a right to do that. But given the climate of what's going on in our country, don't you think that's kind of a little, I don't know, unsafe, like not common sense, not practical? And... Like I said, you have the right to protest, but there's a time and a place for that. 
and given what's going on, I feel like congregating congregating in a mass group is exactly the last thing you want to do. And I kind of thought of it as like, ah, these guys are a bunch of idiots, probably just redneck hicks from my hometown who've, you know, live in the boonies and, you know, just live their way of Second Amendment life. I don't know. But then I was thinking about it over the weekend, thinking about it a little more, you know, not like actively, it's not like I'm sitting in my chair pondering the ways of the world, but I'm thinking about it. I went to school for finance and got a finance degree, so naturally I'm pretty in tuned with what the economy is doing, what the stock market's doing, what the government's doing. You have to pay attention to those things because if you're an investor, even if you've got like Robinhood account or 401k or a gigantic trust, every all these things matter. And and I'm thinking about it and I'm like wait a minute, this entire situation with how to handle reopening our economy is pretty much boiled down into two factions, two different groups of differing thoughts. You have one group, I mean, it seems to be healthcare workers and, you know, people who think this virus is extremely dangerous and I'm not trying to say it's not I'm not trying to downplay it at all because it is it's got real life implications but there are two factions one group who thinks that you know you have to quarantine until this was done and then there's another group of people who see it from a different way as it being you know destructive to their livelihood and both groups aren't willing to see the other side of the argument. And this is kind of why I wanted to talk about this whole issue today. I'm not here to complain about, oh my God, these people are protesting down at the Capitol. Or, oh my God, these people are, they don't want us to, they want to take our rights and control us and remove our freedom. And it's not that. This entire situation boils down to one thing. Black and white is not a thing here. This entire coronavirus issue from the beginning until whenever it ends, it could be a month from now, two months from now, I don't know. And no one does. Anyone who tells you they know is a liar. It boils down to this. I was thinking about it. And it sounds really harsh to say, but it's true. There is a fine line between what is more dangerous. Us integrating our normal way of life back into our reality too soon or failing to go back to normal life too late. There's a fine line where quarantine and economic downturn meet. And we need to find that line. We need to find that perfect blend of safety and prosperity. We have to. Otherwise, you're going to open up more issues down the road. On one hand, you have a very real 
and very infectious disease that can be spread if we open again too soon. Cases need to halt growing. Like new cases are still mounting every day in a or in a at a rate it's not safe to open yet. That's just a fact. But you can't wait until it hits zero either. Because it might be too late. And that's why I don't like the media giving our government leaders from the top, I mean all the way up, Donald J. Trump, all the way up to your local leaders or your city mayors who are getting flack for this too. This is not territory we've been in before. It really isn't. Swine flu, bird flu, Zika, fuck that. It's just not it. This novel coronavirus has a blend of lethality and infectiousness that we've never seen before. A lot of diseases throughout our history of the world have been either too deadly upon infection and the virus or the contagion, whatever you want to call it, literally kills itself through its host because it's too strong. Then you have something like the common cold, which is extremely infectious, but it's not going to kill you. You need to find middle ground. And the problem is right now, the, the way I see it, both sides don't see eye to eye on it. And none are willing to understand and step in the other side's shoes about what can really happen. Like, it's cutthroat. It's almost heartless to say that people dying and people not being able to provide for themselves have equally potential... They have equal potential to be disastrous. It really does. And, I mean, I'm not trying to devalue human life because it's the most precious thing in this world. But if... I mean, you have... 10 times as many people not able to provide for themselves. That's a problem. I explained this in the first the first time I talked about it. The United States lives we operate in a service-based economy. This country works every day because someone has a job and they go spend their money on entertainment, necessities, and whatever the fuck they want to. The money gets spread around that way. It's not about making a tangible thing and selling it anymore. It's not the 1930s and the 40s. That's how we got out of the Depression, World War II. It's not like that. We need to spend our money, and if nothing is open, the entire system ceases to exist. And some people think that's a good idea, and it's not. I'm not trying to get this, get this turn this into a argument about capitalism versus socialism but what I'm going to say is this this is the best system in the world because it brings about ingenuity and innovation if you're trying to make something for profit for money and you want your margins to be as high as they can be you're going to sell something that is the best. It works the best. It's the most durable. Your customer is satisfied. This is just theory. But there's no incentive to do anything better 
if that's not there? Why would you want to make something the best you can if you don't need to? Why would you want to put in the most effort into something if you don't need to, you don't have to? Why would you strive to get a great job, a doctor, a lawyer, if you don't have to? Incentive, ingenuity, innovation. That's what it boils down to me. I didn't mean to rant on so long about this, but moral of my point moral of my story is this. The point of my entire spiel about this was this. You need to see both sides of the picture. You need to. I don't care if you're a healthcare worker. You are essential, and I'm very thankful for what you're doing to help us be safe. You're doing something I couldn't. I don't want to deal with sick people and have them, you know, I don't want to be involved in that process. And I'm very thankful that someone is out there willing to do that because it needs to be done. And don't get all butthurt and, you know, oh, I'm so upset that people don't think I'm essential. Yeah, in the grand scheme, in the grand scheme of things, no one's fucking essential. You're here for... A you're here on this earth for a specific amount of time and once you're gone you're fucking gone so don't dig into it any more than that I'm thankful but don't get all butthurt and don't complain about it because no one cares you just have to do what you do okay getting derailed I'm sorry two sides quarantine open it up right away you need to understand the other side in order to get the right solution. And you need to work together. That's it. No one is going to be perfectly happy in their school of thoughts, but you need to find something in the middle to figure it out. Done. I love the NFL, but I hate the fucking draft. <laughs> I can't stand watching the draft. It's too freaking long. And the first round was Thursday night. And it took like four hours to get 30 picks because, you know, they need to make a content bit out of it. Like, Roger Goodell, you're a tool. You are the worst commissioner in the history of sports and you're a tool. I don't care if you're... I don't want to see your petty man cave. I don't want to see your stupid man cave. My solo apartment with like two posters on the wall is cooler than your fucking man cave, Roger. Like, you're a billionaire. Spend some money and get a decent-ass man cave. I don't care if you, you're giving away seats to the game in a day. With, or, I, I, Roger, just stop. Just read the picks and get the show on the road. I don't care about all the antics and all the, the pizzazz. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to see it. I want to see things like Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury's dope-ass house... And Mike Vrabel's kid taking a shit. That's what I want to see. It's like, dude, who shits with the door open? Shut the door. Like, Mike, I know you're a football guy, but teach your kid, like, some etiquette. <sighs> okay. This episode is all going off the rails, but whatever. Anyways, I'm just going to go through what I, some highlights that I saw from the draft. Going to keep it pretty high level. I'm not going to go into the analytics of every team being like, oh, this team got really good, this team got really good, this team got really bad. I mean, I'll talk about the Packers a little bit being a Packers fan, but, I mean, what? You're drafting 18 to 23-year-old kids 
to play professional football. Half the picks don't pan out anyways, and something else happens along the way to derail your plans. You got 50-some guys on a team, a lot of which get hurt, and you know something happens, plans change. In the NFL, it seems like a lot of these guys even get in trouble, and it's just dumb shit happens throughout the course of the season. And there's all these moving parts and a coach and all these things happen. And it's like the draft is so, like, it's put on a pedestal, and I just don't see the need for it to be. I mean, yes, young talent coming out. NCAA football is extremely exciting. Love the fall. But it's like, I don't know, just get the picks done over the weekend and be done with it. That's how I feel. I'm excited to see Joe Burrow play. I really am. He has swagger. He has confidence. I mean, he knew he was going to be the first round pick or the first pick overall. We all knew it. And he kind of embraced that. Like I saw some articles saying he was studying the playbook weeks ago in anticipation of playing for the Bengals. That's pretty cool. But I don't know. I feel like that over that confidence can become overconfidence pretty quickly. And, I mean, he had, like, a damn good year, probably the best season a college quarterback has ever had. But, I don't know, I'm a firm believer that guys need to sit before they start. I mean, look at Sam Darnold. Look at Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield had some more success early on because he sat and waited a few weeks while Darnold had to get just thrown right into the, the mix of things. And a quarterback, especially especially a quarterback, because they're the guy who gets paid the most money. They're the overseer of your offense. They're making reads. They're making decisions on the fly. They need time to absorb what NFL speed is like. It's not college. I mean, especially, like, for Big 12 quarterbacks. Like, you might as well be playing against practice dummies out there. You need to adjust to that. Like, Patrick Mahomes is probably the best example in a long time of where taking a year off before helps. Look at Aaron Rodgers, the best quarterback that I've ever seen play. I mean, given his career and how long his tenure in the league, best quarterback I've seen play. He sat for years under Brett Favre before he was able to play. And I'm just curious to see where Joe Burrow fits into that category. I'm also really excited to see Tua. I mean, he had that pretty bad hip injury last year. Yeah, I believe it was last year. He had that really bad hip injury. And doctors said he should make a full recovery, but... I mean, it was the same injury Bo Jackson had, one of the best athletes, you know, pound-for-pound athletes to ever play professional sports, and he wasn't the same after he hurt himself that way, that hip. So I'd like to see that too. Same thing with Jalen Hurts. I mean, you got two young quarterbacks there, and how are they going to fit Jalen Hurts into that offense? I mean, Wentz is pretty good, but he's injury-prone. He's proven that. And, I mean, I'm not prepared to say Jalen Hurts is like Taysom Hill. I don't think that's a fair comparison because at the quarterback position, I think Jalen Hurts has much more upside than Taysom, Taysom Hill has. 
you know, he's more prone. Like, he's more athletic, well-rounded, I think. But, I don't know. It's kind of a weird comparison I just made. I just feel like it's going to – Doug Peterson's going to have to do something different than what Sean Payton's doing in New Orleans. So, I guess we'll see about that, too. I'm just reading through some of these picks, and I'm like, Jesus. There's so much talent in the first and second rounds of the, these drafts. And, oh, man, it would have been nice if, you know, Green Bay utilized some of that right away. But I'm going to go and make my thoughts on this known. I don't hate what Green Bay did. I don't like how they traded up to that guy, to Jordan Love from Utah State. I don't like how they, you know, traded up to get a guy like that who's probably going to be on the board anyways. Maybe. You don't know. You're speculating. But I'm not going to doubt this franchise in how to groom a quarterback. With the exception of probably San Francisco, off the top of my head, I'd say San Francisco. There is not an NFL franchise in the league who has had sustained talent at the quarterback position than the Green Bay Packers. I mean, Tom Brady's almost made that himself. I mean, being New England for 20 seasons, damn near. But, I mean, the 49ers had Joe Montana and Steve Young for a very long time. Green Bay's had Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers for a very long time. You even had Bart Starr in the 1960s, and then when he retired... You had 15 years off and then another 30 years of top-notch quarterback play. That's a fact. There's not a team better, and I'd be surprised if you can name one. None are coming to my mind. I'm going to trust the front office on how to handle this quarterback thing. Aaron Rodgers, people are probably saying the same thing about Aaron Rodgers when he was drafted. It's the same situation. Brett Favre was mid-30s, 35, 36, getting up there in age. I mean, it is a totally different scenario when it comes to their games, their style of play. But it's so similar. Like, you, Brett Favre still had good years left in him, and it's the same thing with Rodgers. I, like I said, I just wish that they would have maybe made the same picks or the same type of picks early on just strategically did it a little differently they didn't get better for this year though that's what i don't like the skill guys they picked up they they i don't know they didn't get better with that this quarterback though give him two three years you who knows and the way i see it too looking at roger's contract i think he's got three years left on his deal He's not going to be like a Tom Brady or a Brett Favre or a Peyton Manning or a guy like that who tries to keep playing and playing and playing. Once he's done, he's done. That's just his attitude. Once he wants to walk away, he's going to leave and he's never going to look back. And I understand why Green Bay went for a quarterback early on. I could be wrong. That's just the way I feel about it. I think it's a... 
maybe not the best decision to make. Maybe you could have gotten a guy, you know, third, fourth round. Tom Brady was a sixth round pick or seventh round pick, something like that. 199th pick. I don't know what round that falls into. I don't remember off the top of my head. Sorry. Half the time I just think of this stuff from the contents of my mind anyway. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But 199th pick, very late. There's talent everywhere in the draft. So, I mean, who knows what these guys will bring? Who knows with anybody? I mean, some guys are just busts. Some guys blossom. We're just going to have to see. All right, this is the stuff I wanted to talk about. I've never been so excited for the NBA until this documentary came out. Like, I just, I've never been able to get into the NBA. I hate the dramatics and the the flopping and the sick league stuff. Like, uh, hockey podcast I listen to, Spit and Chicklets. One of the hosts on there is constantly bashing the NBA, but rightfully so. Like, it's almost like a soap opera. It's like the desperate housewives of the athletic world, and it's annoying. I hate that shit. Like, play basketball. That's why I like this 90s basketball, because they played fucking ball, hard-nosed ball. I loved it. But this, these two episodes were really interesting because it was kind of a sideshow from Mike, these two. I mean, of course, you get his highlights because the guy was just a savage. If you're still in, Le- if you're in LeBron's camp still, I don't know how you are. I think you're blind. The highlight reel proves it. Like, Michael Jordan is the best. He's just the best. I'm sorry. LeBron ain't doing shit he's too soft this one was all about Dennis Rodman one of the coolest sports nicknames by the way the worm he would just slide around and you know play fantastic defense and a tenacious rebounder and that's so undervalued in today's NBA because guys don't do that the only the guy I see that wants to be like Dennis Rodman is Draymond Green except Draymond Green isn't half the player Dennis Rodman is like, he gets all this spotlight and notoriety because he's outspoken. And he's constantly sh- shown in a good light because he plays on the Golden State Warriors. It was, he had a little bit more of a case when it was just Steph and Clay because he was an integral part of that starting five. Like, he was the glue. But when Kevin Durant got there, Draymond Green is average at everything and excels at fucking nothing. I think he's a talking bad, bad, bad. He's he like wants to be an enforcer, like you know your big ass hockey defenseman that will stick up for a bad cross check and he'll fight three times a night. Not anymore, but back in the day, he wants to be like Dennis Rodman or Udonis Haslam, those enforcers. And he's just not. I mean, he talks the game. He's a really good trash talker. But, I mean, I don't even think he gets respect from guys he plays against. Because it's just like back up his game. Like, his jump shot's fucking broke. I mean, I think at one point last season or the season before, he was shooting like 25% from three. It's like I could take an open three the way they play offense. And I could shoot better than one for four. Come on. Anyways, the worm. That 
is I was trying to think about what to talk about in this episode before like you know not just break it down as it happened but kind of think of a theme to this I'm going to get into that but I am going to highlight some of the things I saw interesting throughout the two episodes beforehand First of all, Dennis Rodman is probably the goofiest athlete I've ever, ever, ever seen. And he's just expressing himself, man. Like, he would fit right in in today's NBA because of, you know, the way we are a little more laxed when it comes to expressing how you feel, identifying with how you want in today's culture. Like he'd fit right in. The... The goofy hair, the piercings, the painted fingernails, all that stuff. He'd fit right in with, like, our social climate today. And he fit right, he fit in fine that back then, too. He's just a flamboyant character. And, like, the vacation story with him was incredible. Mike and Scotty and Phil are like, he needs a vacation. <laughs> Give him 48 hours. And Mike's like, he's going to fucking go to Vegas. And he went to Vegas. And he disappears for like a week, and that was funny. But that's just something that Dennis Rodman would do. and like, It's just how he was, and he's a fantastic basketball player. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer, the best defender of all time, if you ask me. And uh, David Aldridge is a respected NBA journalist, too, and he said the same thing. He is the best defender I've ever seen in 30 years of covering the game. That goes for a lot. That means a lot, especially when... All these people are saying that. I'm just going to graze over this real quickly because I'm going to get into it a little bit more later. But the bad boys, that whole system they played and seeing the highlights from that, it's like, oh my God. And I see the criticism of it too. It's like a lot of these teams at the time were like, we see it as a degradation or desecration, whatever you want to say, to the beauty of the game. They played physical. Like, they would just beat the crap out of you every night. But it worked. It won them two titles. And it was a huge part of changing the Bulls' culture. A huge part. Like, the Bulls' transgression wouldn't have been the same. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later as well. The shot. I'm just going to let that sink in for a minute. The shot. The shot. 1989. Eastern Conference Semis. Bulls. Cavs. Game 5. The time they played a best of 5 in the uh, early rounds of the playoffs. That shot of Michael Jordan is probably the most iconic photo in sports history. I can't think of one more prolific than that. Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Linston or Tiger raising his putter, sign of victory. I don't know. I can't think of one that's more prolific than Michael Jordan hitting the final shot in that playoff series. It was really cool seeing the like story behind it the sports reporters and Mike was like well this guy picked three games this guy picked four games this guy picked five games we took care of you 
we took care of you, and tonight we're going to take care of you. And it's like he just loves silencing his critics, and it was really cool to see that come out as well. Phil Jackson and the triangle offense was just as big in their success because it changed the way Michael thought. And Michael, when you think of the alpha male character in sports, Michael Jordan is probably the first and probably should be the only one that comes to your mind first. Phil Jackson was such a good coach that he was able to show Michael Jordan the most prolific basketball player ever, the most ball-dominant player in the league that needed to score, 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 score. You couldn't. You just can't. You can't just tell a guy that hey, you do, you have other options. You need to show him how it works. Like the triangle was. It was cool how they broke it down because like they had the lines on the screen and it was just rotate through like one pass the natural motion of the offense opens up new lanes you know backdoor passes skip passes screens things like that you can flow within your offense without being stagnant like in a hero iso ball type offense i think it's at 33 passes or there's 33 options after one pass from the point guard to the wing in the triangle offense that just spurs creativity and for a guy like Michael Jordan with teammates like Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant and John Paxson at that time you could do so much and it showed they got much better and you could tell Phil is such a spiritual guy too I mean I think they he's like in a Native American history and Zen Buddhism and that's a theme that we see more in professional sports today is players and coaches trying to be more in touch with the spiritual things because it's not about like you know the practice itself it's about the benefit it does to the body like yoga is becoming really big in baseball because one Jake Arrieta had probably the best Pilates routine of the time and like revitalize his dying career and won a Cy Young and World Series and all that good stuff. It's the benefit it gives you, the flexibility, the inner stability, the the calm, the mind, the reason. That's why these things are so important. Balance and you know, um, being reserved in the moment and letting things come to you and being in one place at one time, the present. You're not worried about the past. You're not worried about the future. And that is so important and so underrated, too. About That is so underrated for an athlete's ability to succeed. They need to be present and mentally tough. And that is what I'm going to tie all of these three things into is what made the Bulls change into like a almost perennial playoff team with one then two very good players to a powerhouse and it happened relatively quickly that's what I'm going to talk about oh and one last thing I'm totally with Mike 
about the Pistons leaving the floor after they finally did overcome the Pistons, the bad boys. Those guys were assholes, man. They were good basketball players, but they were fucking assholes. Like, you win with class, you lose with class. That's what your little league coach tells you when you're 10 years old. The coach has no business to be there. He doesn't know damn shit about baseball or any sport for that matter. But he knows about life. And life, nothing humbles you more than life. And you you greet it with open arms. You win with class, you lose with class. And I, in my opinion, I don't care who did it first. Isaiah Thomas, Hall of Fame point guard, said the, Bull, said the Celtics did it first when they finally dethroned the Celtics in the mid-80s. Or like eighty six, I think it was. It doesn't fucking matter. The Bucks got to stop somewhere. You win with class, you lose with class. Damn it, this episode's been a real shit show. I'll try to wrap this up quick. W- way I see it, there are three key takeaways, or three reasons why the Bulls finally got over that hurdle. First, it was Mike's just pure desire to succeed. This, I think it was the fourth episode, did a really good job of explaining how Michael was so much more competitive than his teammates and how he was able to tap into their own competitive stuff in order for them to succeed. Like picking up the weights before the off season before they finally beat the Pistons or living in the gym for a summer Mike would have, Mike would have done that anyways but he was able to teach his teammates to do that too and that was huge because it's like an all-in mentality like if your leader is out there you know busting his ass grinding working hard not taking days off you kind of feel obligated to Join along. Because a lot of times the guys at the top are like, I don't have to do anything more. I'm at the top. And then the guys underneath them are like, I don't fucking care. Why should I care? He doesn't. Why should I? But it's really... It's really motivating when you see somebody who has it all minus what they want. They have the athletic ability. They have the desire. They've achieved so many things already. MVP... Rookie of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year, scoring titles. He's already achieved the things about me, but he wants to achieve the things about we. And it's all hands on deck. And he was able to tap into that. The next one was the bad, were like the bad boys themselves. Basketball was so different back then. It really was. It's not like today where... Guys don't play physical. They don't. The Warriors changed the game forever. Steph Curry and Klay Thompson can shoot from you know, 35, 40 feet away. Other guys are following suit. Damian Lillard's got lethal range. LeBron James has even developed a three-point game. There's so many guys that can play away from the hoop that you don't need the physicality anymore. Kevin Durant's one of the best pure, probably the best pure shooter ever when it comes to not just the three-point line, but mid-range, inside, three-point. You combine all that, like he's the best pure scorer ever. 
seven, like he's 6'10", 6'11", 7 feet, huge wingspan. He's able to play. It's different now. Th- that's th- those guys wouldn't make it back then. And the bad boys were proof of that. Like, I think LeBron James fans, like those 14-year-old kids who have, like, just learned how to wipe their ass and have never seen Michael Jordan play, that's what they say. Oh, he lost to the ninth, the Detroit Pistons before he even got to the finals. LeBron wouldn't make it a half. He might not even make it a quarter. Bill Lambeer would body check him into the row and he'd be in tears. Like the third row and he'd be in tears. He wouldn't make it. None of these guys would make it today. That's just LeBron. And LeBron, I mean, he's a physical specimen and he wouldn't make it. He's too soft. That's why I don't like when people even compare him to just Michael one-on-one. Jordan would talk him to death. He'd talk him out of the gym. He wouldn't even have to put on his shoes. He wouldn't even have to lace up. The trash talk would get LeBron. LeBron's soft. And you can tell it. Like, There's this narrative with him and about being the greatest of all time. Kobe and Michael and those guys built like that just said, I want to be the greatest. LeBron James makes an Instagram post from his older self to his younger self. Like, social media ruined LeBron James. His, I shouldn't say that, but I don't think he has the mental fortitude and the physical toughness. He has the strength, not the toughness to make it back then. I don't like that criticism of Michael Jordan's Bulls. It's not fair, and it's unrealistic to make that criticism because it's just not true. That team made the Bulls who they are because it got them over the hump. With Michael's competitiveness, their team willing to buy in, the bad boys made what they needed to do clear. It was a mental thing, not a physical thing. And that's what really sets apart good athletes from bad ones. Not even athletes, just people. Successful people versus unsuccessful people is mental toughness and fortitude and determination and persistence. The last thing was Phil Jackson. Because Phil could get to Michael in a way that others couldn't. Fantastic basketball players need hard-nosed coaches. They do. They need to be challenged. It's like Kobe Bryant won five titles with Phil Jackson. You need to be challenged no matter who you are. And sometimes it's hard for people at the top of their respective practices to be held accountable. And Phil could do that to Michael. He brought new studies, a new offense that allowed Mike to not have to score 40 a night. That's nice. You can let other aspects of your game blossom too. He's a fantastic defender. He could score. He can rebound. He can do all kinds of things when you don't have to do the same thing every time. And back to the Pistons, that offense or that defense that they demised for Michael, you know, drive him away from baseline, 
force him left. If he gets baseline, you just truck him. You're not going to do that anymore. And it showed. It showed how everything came to fruition when they blew the Pistons out of the gym. It was really cool to learn about Dennis Rodman and how he was that enforcer. And the Bulls gave him a chance. Jerry made a good decision there. But it was cool. It's really cool to see all that come out because they had a 30 for 30 about the bad boys. And it talked about the Bulls kind of dethroning them at the end. But it's different to see it from the other side too. And that's all I got for you. This one went a little long. Sorry I kept rambling on in the beginning. But, hey, man, it's Jake's world. I do what I want, right? You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at JakeSawinski8, J-A-K-E-S-A-W-I-N-S-K-I-8, JakeSawinski8. Episode 6 should be dropping Friday, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Do it again and again and again. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your parents, tell your dog. I don't care. Gotta get this thing growing. Alright, peace.